0: The Book Club is brought to you in association with Charles Stanley Community, providing our clients, colleagues and friends with practical support and conversation. Find out more at Charles Stanley Community.
1: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, This week I'm joined by the Irish writer Mark O'Connell, whose new book is called Notes from an Apocalypse, A Personal Journey to the End of the World and Back. Mark, welcome. Your book published, as we we saw you had a kind of virtual book launch in the end, you know, right when your subject seemed to be coming to the front of the news how are you getting on with the apocalypse now it's actually happening yeah
0: fine thanks having a having a great apocalypse i mean it's a it's a weird one like it's obviously it, it's strange and stressful publishing a book at the best of times as you know but um it's particularly strange when you know bookshops are not open so that's that's a big sort of peculiarity of this situation it is i mean it's it's been odd to be honest publishing a book about the apocalypse at a time when no one seems to be able to think or speak about anything other than how apocalyptic things feel so yeah it's a strange one I mean there's some of the sort of discussion around the book has been you know talking about how prescient it is and how timely and so on obviously that's sheer luck whether it's good luck or bad luck I've no idea but there's you know I can't claim any sort of special prescience or anything like that but yeah it's it's a weird one and like you know publishing a book generally involves a lot of sort of schlepping around the place going here and there getting on planes all that sort of thing and i've just been stuck in my spare room at home doing all this publicity from like book launches to podcasts to newspaper interviews to whatever so yeah in some ways it's almost ideal because i don't i mean i like being places but i don't like traveling i don't like getting on planes that much so this has been kind of like fine actually but now of course nothing appeals to me more than getting on a plane and going to a book festival in, you know, York or wherever it might be.
1: Of course. Now, all of us, you know, have that, have that sort of anxiety about travel and anxiety about, you know, things going wrong. It is a book that sort of starts from personal anxiety. And, well, I mean, in the first place, I should say, I've seen a lot of people saying, you know, people who are anxious, people who, who kind of struggle with anxiety, a lot of them are feeling kind of weirdly calm now things have really gone to tits. Are you finding that experience?
0: It's a weird one. I actually kind of am, you know? You know, it depends on, I mean, things have gone to tits for sure, but I guess the, the thing in the back of my mind is that they could always go more to tits. That's <laughs> yeah. never to be ruled out. So let's sort of bracket that, but let's not forget about it. But yeah, no, it's true. I mean, so for the first week or so of this situation, like really right before the full lockdown happened in Dublin, and I guess we were like, you know, a week and a half ahead of, of the UK in terms of the timeline of this but like for for those days when it was particularly uncertain when the schools started to close and everything started to close down I felt like quite heightened anxiety at that point and I was I think like going through a bit of shock because you know there's so much uncanniness to this situation there still is but in those early days it was peculiarly kind of acute and the sense of uncertainty around the future was like Really, really sharp at that point, and yeah, I was definitely quite anxious, and you know, still am to some degree. But yeah, you're right. It's been kind of muted now, and I think that has to do with, in those early days, there was just a real sense of like anything could happen. You know, the supply lines for shops, you know, food, all that stuff seemed up for grabs. It seemed very uncertain, and now it sort of seems okay. This is bad. Who knows what the effect the long term are going to be, particularly economically and so on, but. I'm not as sort of afraid of the immediate prospect of you know the collapse of civilization or anything like that and you know I think by and large people I mean one of the things I write about in the book is this fear of you know obviously there's a fear of immediate things like you know nuclear strikes terrorist hackers taking out the grid you know the effects of climate change all of these things and preppers tend to like focus on the possibility of like whatever one of these things they're most kind of invested in but really the fear for sort of doomsday preppers and these kind of people is is people themselves it's other people it's you know people reverting to savagery and you know running out of food and you know taking up arms and you know marauders breaking into your house and so on that seems not to be the case and you know it's been interesting to see how you know with how much dignity and sort of fellow feeling and mostly kind of communal collective self-interest that people have been dealing with this crisis you know and i think that's been kind of both reassuring and kind of heartening in terms of like optimism for the future so there's a lot of this that is scary but there there are a lot of reasons to be kind of optimistic as well. So, you know, I'm yeah, I'm relatively calm for a person who yeah. has made a living it, out of being anxious.
1: This this point you make about the which I think is is it sort of runs right through the book about collective self-interest versus this kind of, you know, it is sort of a fantasy of like drastic self-reliance in the face of the collapse of civilization. I mean, how are the the preppers who, where the book starts, you know, you're interested and become interested in these people who, lots of them, most of them men, lots of them living in, you know, various quite rural parts of America are kind of invested in the idea of, you know, civilization collapsing and what they're going to do. They get their bug out bags, they're going to head for the hills or they're going to head for the basement and, you know, stock up on guns and tin food. I mean, What's your sense of how they've reacted to this in the sense that the actual crisis turns out to be one that seems to have produced a much more communal, sort of, as it were, you know, left collectivist rather than right libertarian sort of reaction?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I don't, I, like, I don't want to be too, like, sort of prescriptive or absolutist about this because, there were, I mean, it's a time in which there's like, so much fear and uncertainty but also so many ways in which people can see their sort of pre-existing ideological conditions, as it were, borne out by what they're seeing around them. And, you know, I do have a tendency to to look around and say, well, this is actually, you know, a real opportunity from a sort of a like liberal or leftist perspective in the sense that, you know, people are starting to realize that it's, you know, as I say, communal self-interest that will get us through this crisis and things like, you know, investment in health services and so on. These are all Kind of realizations that you know people are realizing that these things are are absolutely crucial, but at the same time there probably are opportunities for people to look at this as you know something that will shore up kind of right wing ideologies you know questions around hard borders and xenophobia all these kind of things will probably you know blossom somewhat as a result of this but i think I think in general, I would imagine preppers in in one sense are feeling quite. Yeah, and with some justification I think, probably feeling quite, you know, self justified, maybe even a little smug that, you know, we we have been saying something like this has been coming for a really long time and they have. There's no getting around it. I mean the, the basic prepper message, which you can kind of detach from ideology to a fairly large degree, is that something is coming. It's just by the nature of the precariousness of our existence, something will happen, whether it's, you know, a nuclear strike or a pandemic like this or some kind of unforeseen you know preppers are quite invested in the idea of asteroids hitting the earth and so on so you know there's any number of things that could happen so they were right that like the big thing did happen and it is a thing that they have warned about pandemics you know but at the same time i think if you you know if you predict some catastrophe like a pandemic happening for long enough you're going to be right eventually you know an, an epidemiologist can tell you that you don't need to be a prepper to to sort of be thinking that But undeniably, there is a sense in which they're right. And I found in the first, like, as I said, the first sort of week or so of this situation, when I was feeling particularly anxious, I did find myself, you know, like I bought quite a lot of sort of prepper manuals and practical guides to surviving catastrophe and sort of, you know, providing for your family during times of crisis and so on. So I bought a lot of those books. And when I read them for the book, I was reading them with basically sort of scholarly interest, you know, at a sort of an ironic arm's length. And I did find myself taking them down off the shelf and kind of looking through the index with something other than scholarly interest, maybe some sort you know, the desire for practical knowledge. Well, maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to have some knowledge of, you know, water filtration techniques or what, what are the ideal foods to stockpile or whatever. And so I think from a prepper perspective they might well be sort of thinking, well, welcome to where we've been for years now. Welcome to the place where we've been occupying in the culture. Yeah, do you
1: have a basement full of chickpeas now?
0: I, do, I don't I do have a basement. And to be honest, I'm not sure that it would be full of chickpeas, even if I did have one. <laughs> Who knows what it would be full of? You know, I, I can come across as kind of hypercritical of preppers. You know, there is a strong vein of like hypercriticism and a lot of it is political in the book. But I do think that you know, personally, I could probably do with a little bit more preparedness in life. A little bit of sort of rugged individualism on my part probably wouldn't go astray. But I just don't seem to be wired that way. You know, the energies that I, the sort of anxious energies that I channel in the book, they all go into, well, first of all, just plain old worrying, which is, as everyone knows, fairly useless. And then into kind of, you know, YouTube rabbit holes. And eventually the writing of the book was a sort of main vector of that energy. None of it seemed to go into actually doing any practical stuff.
1: Now, that origin of the book, the germ of it, I mean, one of the things I think that that resonates through the whole book is this idea that, you know, you have this anxiety and it becomes something that sort of feeds on itself. So, you know, the, the, the preppers are sort of half fearing and half fantasizing about the end of the world. And, you know, in your book, the thing that absolutely sort of astounded me was you said, you know, my homepage is set to a Reddit thread on the collapse of civilization. I mean, is that was that a sort of self-indulgence? Was that something you did for the book? Or was that really like the best way to manage your anxiety is to make sure that every time you log on to the internet, you're confronted with 25 different scenarios for the end of the world?
0: I mean, in one sense, it was absolutely a self-indulgence. And by that point, I was writing the book. So I had decided to kind of, you know, just fling myself headfirst into these anxieties to see what it would do. And to spend as much time as possible, you know, within the sort of bounds of sensible sort of mental health, just reading as much as I could, watching as much as I could, thinking as much as I could about the prospects for all these different things that could happen. And part of it was like just a kind of perverse, almost masochistic desire to sort of go there, you know, and that's where a lot of my writing seems to come from. It's just like I feel anxious about something. I feel unsure or scared about something or repelled by something and I go towards it and I try and sort of turn I you know the term I often find myself reaching for when I talk about that perverse element of my writing is sublimation the sort of Freudian idea of turning your perverse desires or fears or whatever they are into some kind of higher creation whether it's a work of art or you know something else. So that's how I kind of intellectualize it. But yeah, I mean, it was basically a kind of perverse self-indulgence. It didn't go on for that long. It went on for like a few months, as with anything with your homepage. I mean, the thing that I didn't say in the book is that, you know, my homepage right now is Google News. I don't always look at Google News when I, you know, fire up my web browser or whatever. But it did. It had a kind of an ambient effect over a while. And it definitely on aggregate was probably not a good idea to set my homepage to Reddit's collapse forum. I wouldn't do it again, that's for sure.
1: (laughs) Now, why is it, do you think, that there is that thread of attraction, that sense that a lot of people are invested, as you put it, in the idea of catastrophe, that, that there's a sort of absolute moth to a flame attraction in the fantasizing about it?
0: I think we love it. You know, when I say we, I don't mean everyone, but I think it's there in our culture. I mean, if you look at almost every big sort of Hollywood blockbuster movie that comes out now, and this may change in the wake of the coronavirus, but, you know, for recent years, all these movies had some kind of apocalyptic element to them. Not all, but certainly a striking kind of a striking amount of them. You know, things like the Marvel movies, superhero movies, any of the kind of big explosion-filled action movies, so many of them have some kind of apocalyptic kind of trajectory going through them. And so much of the like art and literature and so on that sort of grabs us has this kind of curiosity and fear at its at its core and one thing i found when i was writing the book was that like when i started working on it people would you know naturally if you're a writer people ask you what you're working on and i didn't at that point i didn't really know what the book was about or what its focus was i knew it was about The idea of the apocalypse and apocalyptic anxieties. I didn't quite know where I was going to go with it. So, you know, I would just say I'm working on a book about the apocalypse. And so many people just said to me, more or less unironically, oh, I love the apocalypse. You know, whether it's Blade Runner or, you know, The Road or whatever it is, you know, Margaret Atwood's books, so many of them, A Handmaid's Tale, people do love the apocalypse. And I think that's something I wanted to explore in the book is that kind of murky sort of interzone between our fears and our desires. And that's what I'm sort of trying to explore somewhat in the book. And I don't, you know, absolve myself of it. I try and bring that murkiness into my own kind of investigation of my own fear, my own complicity and so on. To be honest, I don't know that I could have written a book about the apocalypse if I, if I didn't have those sort of murky fascinations myself.
1: Is there a sense in which something of that scale sort of embiggens people, to use the Simpsons' word? You know, the idea really? is... Like, I've got my everyday frustrating workaday life. If the world was completely transformed by destruction, the true me, heroic whatever would come out. Well,
0: yes, I think yes. And also, I think one of the things that's so interesting about this time that we're going through, which is not the apocalypse, it's not the end of the world, but of course the apocalypse is only ever a kind of a mythology that crops up to allow us to deal with the extreme anxiety of times of uncertainty and fear and rapid change and so on. But so right now, I think what's interesting is that it feels to me as though the world is narrowing down to a single point. There's one sort of narrative strand going through everything. So like if you turn on the radio, my son is constantly complaining about this. Why is everyone talking about the coronavirus all the time? You know he's just annoyed by it as opposed to anxious about it. But you know,
1: sorry, your son's how old? You've got two kids, I think, haven't you? Is that right? My
0: my son now is he just turned seven a couple of weeks ago, and our daughter is not yet two. She's two next month. So he's aware of it, and he's aware of like you know anytime the radio. I tend to turn the radio off when it sort of immediately comes to these kind of unpleasant topics, but he's certainly aware of it. And what I usually say to him is that, well, the reason everyone's talking about it all the time is because there's nothing else. You know, it's been sort of like the only topic at the moment in terms of news. And, you know, you go out, you know, for your like half hour walk or whatever, and you encounter people at a safe distance, but you're all talking about the same thing. And you overhear conversations, everyone is talking about the same thing. So it's as though like there are no other, everyone is dealing with this one problem we're all dealing with it at different levels and in different ways and for some people of course it's like vastly harder than others but it is fundamentally the same problem and there's something about that that is like weirdly i don't know that the word is invigorating but it's certainly like it's clarifying and simplifying you know if everyone is having the same experience we're all kind of brought together in this strange way and i think the appeal of the apocalypse to some degree is that it does away with all other problems and complexities. When I started to write, I haven't thought about this in a while, actually, but I do meant, like, allude to it briefly in the book. When I was in the middle of writing the book, a friend of mine who's a playwright, we'd sort of had previous conversations about, you know, because my previous book, To Be a Machine, was about transhumanists and people who want to live, live forever. And in, on, in some way, it's about the problem of death, of mortality. And he was sort of saying, like, why do you always choose these huge topics? Why do you always go for these, like, you know, almost comically massive sort of philosophical questions, and I was sort of like, "I don't know, and then you know when when I was in the middle of working on the apocalypse book, he sort of said i think I think I know why this is. I think it's because there is no bigger topic than the apocalypse. It's sort of in a way it makes a mockery of any other subject for writing, so that if you're writing about the apocalypse, you know that you are concerned with the with the biggest thing that you could possibly be concerned with." It's, in a way, an apocalypse of all other subjects. And I thought, that's good, actually. And maybe that that is part of the appeal of it for me and part of the appeal of it for everyone. Because, and I write about this a little bit in the book, you know, the apocalypse, of course, is is a myth. And it's a very simple idea that, you know, the world could just end. And there would be some grand cataclysm that will sort of wind everything up. And there is an appeal, I think, to knowing, and it's almost a kind of a narcissistic thing in a way, this idea that we are the ones who will witness the end. We're the ones at the end of history, at the end of creation, and we'll see the the end of the story in our time. You know, Frank Kermode, the literary critic, writes about this great book, which you probably know, The Sense of an Ending, and he kind of digs into this idea quite deeply, this idea that, you know, we're born, as he puts it, in the midst of things, We don't know what the beginning was that led to here. We don't know what the ending is going to be. We're just kind of muddling through in our little confusing patch of history without a sense of a grander sort of context. And the apocalypse as a kind of a popular myth allows us to sort of circumvent that and and allows us to sort of leap past the end and, and project ourselves to a point where everything makes sense. And I think there is you know, a strong degree of that in how we deal with our own current kind of whether it's climate change or the virus or just a sense of the politics of our time being increasingly complicated and bewildering. There's something about the apocalypse which focuses that, narrows it and makes it seem almost explicable.
1: How much do you think that the narrative kind of treatment of the apocalypse is sort of, at least in the West, dominated by a kind of template that's been set down by kind of Christian eschatology. Do do all cultures, is your impression, I know you're working in one particular zone, but is your impression from your research that all cultures have a sort of similar way of thinking about the apocalypse or a similar sort of dominance in their kind of narrative mythological modes?
0: Yeah, I mean, I should be careful of sort of wandering blithely outside of my fairly narrow range of expertise. But it seems to me that like most cultures have some some form of the idea of the apocalypse and it sort of stands to reason that this would be the case because you know as i say we are not to sort of invoke the cliche but we are storytelling animals and you know we tend to want to project ourselves into the future i mean you know ragnarok obviously that's a european mythology but the egyptians had apocalyptic myths you know the aztecs and so on so i think i think it is you know, I wouldn't want to say it's necessarily human nature, but it seems to be something that is common to cultures
1: all around the world. Now, one of the things you, you talk about and explore in the book is this idea that your investment in the world, you know, the, the cliche is, you know, once you have children, you really, really start to care. But but certainly your, your journey, here's another cliche in the book, is shaped to an extent by having children, isn't it? Yeah,
0: I mean, it's, you know, I've been a, father for you know seven years now so it's hard to sort of extricate my personal sort of trajectory from the reality of being a parent but it seems to me that my attitude towards the future changed pretty radically around the time of like early parenthood it wasn't that i you know didn't think about the future i thought about my own future but something about becoming a parent made the future seem to come into, like, sharp focus and the darkness of the future. I mean, the the book, in a way, like its genesis, was not the idea of the apocalypse. I mean, that sort of came later. But, you know, the the first sort of page or two of the book, I write about this moment where I was sitting on the couch watching cartoons with my son. And, you know, at that time, the the moment that I relate is, you know, he's watching a a cartoon with a, a cartoon bear, and a a little girl and they're having these sort of slapstick kind of comedy escapades and I'm watching a video of a polar bear starving somewhere in in the Arctic like trying to get some rubbish out of a bin to feed itself and just that sense of like these two sort of realities in the world the reality that my son lives in which is in some ways a fantasy but a fantasy that I have to reinforce in order to keep him sort of safe from the reality of the world ...and my own reality... ...and there was like a... ...a sense of... ...these two conflicting kind of... ...narratives... ...or two conflicting imperatives... ...this like... ...because for me being a parent... ...has a lot to do with... ...you know people say you can't protect your kids... ...which is true up to a point... ...but you sort of have to... ...particularly when they're very young... ...you have to protect them from... ...all the things that are coming at them... ...from the world... ...all the information... ...and all the kind of... ...all the images and so on... ...and it seems to me that you... ...as a parent have a kind of responsibility to instill in a child a sense of the world as a good and beautiful place, that, like the future as a realm of possibility and sort of lightness. And that's something I believe, and I believe it's not untrue either, but also, you know, you open the newspaper or you look at Twitter or whatever and you just get this like relentless cascade of images and facts and ideas which are reinforcing the idea that the world is... A dark place and that the future is radically kind of uncertain and quite grim and so the time that I was initially kind of writing about in the book I was really almost overwhelmed by the tension between those two things and I couldn't see a way to kind of I didn't want to block out the outside world because that's just not how I'm wired and you know also I'm a writer so you kind of ha- you have a responsibility or just a compulsion to look up and and look around but i was struggling with balancing that with the sort of imperatives of parenthood and you know eventually that kind of sort of tension or anxiety led me down the the sort of youtube rabbit holes that i write about in the early part of the book of like looking at prepper videos and bug out bag videos and so on and it was at that point that i kind of thought actually the apocalypse is a way for me to sort of focus these anxieties and in a way, the apocalypse does exactly that on a broader scale. It's an idea or a mythology that gives shape to these kind of formless anxieties in the culture, I think.
1: Yeah, and, and, and in case people have the impression from from our conversation so far that, that, you know, most of the book was compiled from Reddit threads and YouTube videos, you know, that's just the very early part. You do, go, you do go very much out into the world and put some shoe leather in. You go to South Dakota, to New Zealand, at least by proxy to Mars and off to Chernobyl. I mean, what what made you choose the particular kind of apocalyptic, you know, niches that you chose? And what did you find they had in common?
0: I find this a weirdly difficult question to answer because there was something quite instinctive about it. The book could have been written, I suppose, like any book in endless different ways. But there were probably ways of writing the book that would have made more sense. You know, there are places in the world where the experience of people is much closer to what we are imagining as an apocalypse than anything we would experience here. And arguably the things that I write about in the book sort of circumvent that to some degree. You know, it could have gone to Bangladesh or some place that was undergoing, you know, a serious natural catastrophe or whatever. For various reasons, not that kind of book. It's, I was looking for, and this is sort of how I operate, I think I'm realizing now as a writer in general, for better or worse. I look for, I start with myself. I start with a fascination or an obsession or an anxiety that is, sort of troubling me or vibrating on some frequency in me that I can't sort of tune out from. And I then look for ways that allow me to write about that, things happening in the world outside of me that exist on a continuum with my own sort of anxiety. So things that sort of resonated on that frequency with me, you know, and there was lots of those things. And and some of it had to do with practicality. Where could I go? where would have been interesting to write about and so on. But I wound up looking for places that seemed to me to kind of, where the sort of what I think of as like the apocalyptic energies of the current moment were sort of most most strongly kind of present for me. And I just followed those instincts. And, you know, there, there were things that I did. I mean, there's a lot of very inefficient, I think, as a writer and as a reporter. So there were a lot of things, a lot of dead ends that I went down that didn't wind up making it into the book and, you know, entire reporting trips actually that I just wound up not writing about, which is, you know, an outrageous thing for any kind of writer to do. But um, yeah, yeah. so for better or worse, I just wrote, you know, to use another cliche, I went where the heat was for me and the heat was in those places where, you know, I could write about because they sort of connected with something, that original kind of anxious energy within me.
1: Yeah, one figure who's sort of a, a refugee from your first book is Peter Teal. I mean he's quite a sort of pivotal character. He's this sort of billionaire, isn't he, who's planning to kind of reshape New Zealand into a kind of post-apocalyptic Ayn Rand style polity. I mean, was it was he one of the early early inclusions in the book or were you suddenly like oh here we are, Peter Teal again?
0: Well, first of all, it took me about a year after writing To Be a Machine to sort of formulate any kind of idea for a next book and, you know, to the extent that I knew what I wanted to do I knew at that point that I didn't want to write anything that had any connection with the sort of tech world or the transhumanist kind of milieu that I wrote about in the first book. I wanted to do something completely different. It's only sort of in retrospect that it's completely obvious to me that this book is, you know, on a continuum with the first book and and teal is kind of the, the sort of narrative through line between the two books. But what happened, like it sort of happened, I guess, sort of randomly and organically. I write in that chapter, it is sort of primarily about Teal, but the people I spend most time with in that chapter are a New Zealand artist named Simon Denny and an art critic from Auckland named Anthony Burt. And they were working on this project. Denny had a a project on the go for an exhibition in Auckland, which was kind of about Peter Teal and his worldview and his relationship to New Zealand in that way that you just sort of outlined. And they had read my previous book, to Be a Machine. I mean, there were all kinds of sort of coincidences and uh, sort of odd kind of happenings that went on there. But basically, the editor of my previous book, Max Porter, is a good friend of, of Anthony's. They'd worked together at Daunt Books in, in London, and Anthony had moved back to New Zealand. Max had sent him a copy of To Be a Machine. And they, him and Simon got really fascinated with the book in general, but also with my portrayal of Teal and his kind of strange desire to live forever and his range of investments in the technology around or like medical treatments for, you know, treating mortality itself. And so they reached out to me and said, look, we're doing this project down in Auckland. We know that you are interested in the end of the world, but if you're really interested in the end of the world, you kind of need to come to the literal end of the world, New Zealand, and look at what what's happening here around tech billionaires buying up land around the country and they're, the way in which they kind of perceive New Zealand as a sort of a safe space, an apocalyptic retreat in these kind of uncertain times. And so I went and did it. That was one of the first things that I did for the book. Not the first thing, but one of the first chapters that I did the
1: reporting for. Have you, have you had any comeback from Teal? I mean, has, have you any evidence that, that your writing about him has attracted his notice?
0: No, I'm, I'm pretty sure at this point that he's aware of, I mean, that, so I wrote that first as a Guardian long read, and that got a lot of attention here and in the US at the time. So I'm pretty confident that he has, you know, sort of at least read bits and pieces. I did reach out to him for the last book, you know, just because you kind of have to do that and didn't hear anything back. But in a way, Teal, he's... And I'm quite explicit about this in the book. He's less interesting to me as a person, as a character. I would not be interested in writing, like, a profile of Teal, and less still would I be interested in sitting down in his office in san francisco and having like a 30 minute conversation with him and asking him some questions from my book it's more and i get criticized for this maybe you know rightly so he exists for me as a kind of a symbol for the things that i find most terrifying about certain ideas around the future you know hyper libertarian views of what the future of the nation state is you know the kind of voracious sort of Greed of you know monopoly capitalism all these things seem to me to be kind of interestingly and fascinatingly and troublingly kind of personified by Teal and the things
1: that he's written about. Yeah, I mean this business you know you the sort of capitalist aspect to the apocalypse is something that that runs through the book as well. I mean, is there a sort of version of the apocalypse that isn't in some way commodified? Well,
0: I mean that's an interesting question and like the book to some degree the apocalypse in the book is for me capitalism or at least the direction that capitalism seems to be headed in i mean i had a, a couple of conversations during the writing process with my editor where he was like look mark we get it you don't like capitalism you, you know there, there are moments where where you sort of seem to be just pointing towards capitalism and going yeah look capitalism <laughs> you know there must be there must be another way of putting this
1: so is there a you know, you describe, you know, in Chernobyl, the sort of disaster tourism thing when you're, you know, you talk about the, the people who want to preserve the human race by going to Mars and the way that actually they're all thinking about ways of sort of commodifying it. And the rhetorics around colonialism and selling Mars bonds and, you know, property rights and that sort of thing. You know, Teal in New Zealand, again, is talking about a way of producing a kind of hyper capitalist society the, you meet the guy in South Dakota who's selling stuff you know, real estate for the apocalypse, the sort of mid-range stuff. Is there a sort of a vision of the end of the world that isn't commodified, that isn't saleable?
0: Well, it depends on what you mean by the end of the world, of course. I think, I mean, one of the things that struck me when I was writing the book was that, yeah, like, you know, that sort of presiding cliche over this conversation is the idea that, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I think that I saw that being sort of borne out in various ways. I mean, you know, like, Articles in sort of investor media about you know what what would be the impacts of a nuclear strike from North Korea on the you know stock markets and how you should you know reorganize your investment portfolio around this idea and so on, so I became really fascinated by that and people who were in various ways kind of capitalizing on apocalyptic anxieties and you know in in ways that were sometimes quite unsubtle and in in other ways that were much more subtle and Yeah, that became kind of a presiding sort of interest in the book, which is, you know, largely concerned with people who, in one way or another, are, you know, in some way exploiting these anxieties. And then, you know, I'm very critical of that. But one of the things that's sort of... I mean, the publication of this book has has been just... There's been so many sort of instances of, I guess, dramatic irony around it. But one of the things that I'm most struck by is... In some (laughs) unavoidable sense, I have become one of those people because the book is getting a lot of attention because of its, you know, perceived timeliness. And I just can't avoid the conclusion that I myself (laughs) profiting, well, you know, profiting might be an overstatement, you know, there's no guarantee of book sales, but I'm I'm certainly profiting in terms of like visibility and, you know, prominence from catastrophe in some way so yeah there's an element of sort of like huh maybe i'm not so different to these people i hope i am but you know there are many ways in which people can sort of profit from from the apocalypse and sort of you know make hay while the sun shines there's this great chinese expression that i came across recently which is um in a storm some people build bunkers and some people build windmills which like a lot of you know, Chinese proverbs can be taken in any number of ways, but I thought it was interesting.
1: Yeah. Now, it's also a very funny book. I mean, did you set out sort of to. Because I. I mean, there's an aspect of it, or its tone, its approach, that feels almost more like a non fiction novel than a bit of reportage. I mean, did you set out to create a sort of ironized version of yourself in it? I mean.
0: It's hard for me to say whether I set out to do that. I mean, that seems to be just what I do. It seems to be my approach to topics in general. And, you know, I certainly did. A version of it in the first book i mean I think I was less central to the proceedings in the in the first book, but there are certainly personal elements in it, but yeah, I think you know my intention is never to actually to be funny, so I think my work that's one of the things that people respond to in the work is that they find it funny and that's great, but it's never like it's never something that is approached at the level of like here's my concept for the book, a funny book about the apocalypse. It's just kind of, you know, I've spoken about this a bit recently. But like, I don't see funniness in writing as being at all at odds with or even separate from seriousness. I actually see being funny as a kind of an epiphenomenon of seriousness. Like, if you are sufficiently serious and sufficiently kind of rigorous and sufficiently perceptive in your analysis of reality it's probably going to be funny to some degree. I mean, most of my favorite writers are kind of funny, but not at the level of like, here's a joke about this topic. It's more funniness, like the world is a funny place. And, you know, a lot of the things that I'm writing about are, if not inherently funny, then certainly presided over by ironies and, you know, kind of absurdities. And I see my job as a writer to just describe things, you know, whether they are my own inner states or, you know, things that are happening around me. And I think my faith is that if I'm accurate, they'll be funny. Like one of the strange and sort of gratifying experiences I have as a writer is like, and I don't do this that often, but when I read from like sort of work in progress, you know, in front of an audience of whatever kind, I usually kind of find myself thinking, well, I should I should try and find something funny in the book. I should try and find a funny bit to read because they're always the bits that sort of connect with readers in an actual room. And I often have this thing where I'm like, oh, I can't find a funny bit that works like, on its own, out of context, so I'll just read this bit and hopefully they'll, it'll be fine. And often what happens is people end up laughing anyway. And I, it's almost as like though I don't realise the thing that I've written is funny. And then I'll hear people laughing and then I'll think oh, of course that's funny. It's naturally a funny moment. But it's not that I set out to write jokes. I just, for me, as I say, like, funniness just is proceeds from seriousness. And I also believe, I mean, this sounds maybe a bit glib, but I also kind of think
1: that if... You're not funny as a writer, then there's something basically unserious about you. Yeah, that's a good a good line to end on. Mark O'Connell, thank you very much indeed for your time. Oh, Thank you, Sam. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't feel don't really you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.